Good morning. My name is Spencer. I am one of the pastors here. We are continuing to walk through the book of Exodus, and we are in Exodus chapter 24 uh, today, which in your blue Bibles is page 37. If you want to follow along there, the text will also be on the screen. One of the things that I get to do as a pastor that's very fun is about once or twice a year, I get to perform wedding ceremonies, and they're a lot of fun. It's a, it's a big, powerful moment to be a part of, and one of the things that I do in weddings is I use traditional wedding vows. Um, I, I try to find more traditional language for the vows that, uh, that the husband and wife can, are going to commit to do in, with one another. So here's a few of the lines from what I use. I promise to love and support you in times of plenty and in want, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. And what's powerful about that moment is that as the husband and the wife are saying those words, there's no way they have absorbed how weighty and how hard and how wonderful and how difficult it is going to be to live out those vows. There's nothing that can prepare you for being able to live that out. Like, I promise to love and support you through all kinds of things. What if he gets really into like weird niche hobbies like puppetry sports, which is a thing? What, what if she decides to be a momfluencer and goes hard after that? Like what, through all of that, like how do you love and support someone through things that you may not care about at all? In times of plenty and in want, we all think about the plentiful times where things are going to be great where he gets a raise when she gets a raise and he gets six figures and all of a sudden we can buy a boat like that that's what you have in mind is everyone as they're projecting out their marriage they say, over time we're going to keep growing in income but what about the times where, when you were in want what about the times where he loses his job and can't find work for four or five months what happens when the bills are mounting up and a kid sticks a bean in his ear and has to be taken to the ER in the middle of the night and then all of a sudden you've got a $1,000 medical bill that just gets put on the stack? What about in times of sickness and in health? What are the moments at the end of life where five, six, seven years she's fading away from dementia, she's not even remembering who you are what about till death do his part when you're holding his hand as he breathes his last breath? No, you're not ready for all of that when you take those vows. You're taking a leap of faith to when the time comes, you're going to be ready. Those are powerful and weighty words that you commit to as you enter into the covenant of marriage. Today we're in Exodus 24, and we're going to watch the nation of Israel enter into the covenant relationship with their God. And it's going to be like a bit of a, like a, like a wedding where they're going to commit to following God. And there's a lot that's built into that that they can't even begin to see yet. So we're going to look at the details of this covenant ceremony that we're going to see in Exodus 24. And then we're going to look at it as Christians, looking back at that and what that means for us in our Christian faith now. So let me pray, and then we'll walk through this together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel that we just got to sing. 
for the truth of the scriptures that opens our hearts. God, I pray that you'd help us be present. I pray that you'd help us hear and receive so that we can walk out your word in faith and in repentance and in worship and in delighting in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the back end of Exodus, we've said we're taking a little bit differently. We've moved around a little bit. We're taking mostly topically. So let me just kind of reorient where we are in the book of Exodus uh, as we step into 24. So in Exodus 19, God calls the people to Mount Sinai. The Israelites are at Mount Sinai, and then they receive the Ten Commandments, which is really the header of the law. We walk through those Ten Commandments one by one. Now, what follows after that is some laws pertaining to a few different things. We looked at the laws pertaining to servitude. We looked at some of the laws uh, last week that pertain to the feasts. And then at the end of chapter 23, God previews what's going to happen when they enter the promised land, when God pronounces his judgment on the people of the land and creates a, a, a promised land and a space for his people to be in his presence. He's previewing that. This is what's coming And then we get to chapter 24. We pick up in verse 1. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, which Nadab and Abihu are the sons, two of the sons of Aaron, and 70 70 of the elders, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. All right, so, again, it's hard to remember where we are, but Exodus 19, all the way up into really verse 4 of chapter 24, is actually all one day. We've been in this for months, but this is all one day. And there's a lot that's happening in this one day, and he's calling them as they're going to... uh, ratify this covenant that he makes with his people. A covenant is an agreement, a treaty that he's making with his people. But this covenant that he's about to ratify, that the people are about to finalize, that started in Exodus 19, earlier in the day, which for us was months ago. But if you can remember back, we're in Exodus 19. This is when it all begins at verse 5 and 6. Now, therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So this is when the covenant began. Earlier in the day, saying, you are going to be my treasured possession, my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. That's what they're going to be to the Lord. They're going to be a kingdom of priests. So that means that the, the surrounding nations that will be around the promised land, they do not know God. They do not honor God. You get to be a kingdom of priests that declares the glory of God to the surrounding nations who do not know him as my holy people in keeping this covenant, in keeping the Ten Commandments and the law. And then when we get here to chapter 24, this covenant is being ratified. It's being finalized. And what we're about to witness and the ceremonial events that are included in this are a little bit foreign to us. It's, it, it may seem even weird if you've never 
encountered this in the scriptures before, but we have to remember we're very far removed from the context of the people. We're 3,000 years plus removed from an ancient Near Eastern context where this would have been more familiar ceremonial aspects for them. It's foreign to us in the same way that if you took the Israelites and put them in a time machine and brought them to today, and if they were out in front of a, a building and then there were people in front of this building and then all of a sudden they stretched out this long red ribbon and then somebody came in with giant swords that had handles and then cut that ribbon and then all the people clapped and they walked inside, that would be pretty foreign to them because they're not, they don't know what that is, but we know what that is. That's a ribbon cutting ceremony. It's a business opening up. That's, so we're removed from the context here, and some of these details are going to be difficult to wrap our minds around what's happening, but I just want to give you the highlights of what we're about to see. We're about to see God come together with his people, his kingdom of priests. They're going to come together. Both parties will be represented. There will be sacrifices that are made. The terms of their agreement are going to be read, the Ten Commandments. And then they're going to come together and celebrate and a big feast that follows. And that's the gist of what we're going to see, but the details we're a little bit removed from. So let's walk through this together. Verse 3, Moses came, and, Moses came and I told the people all the words of the Lord in all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. So, this is what we're seeing right here is the rehearsal before the ceremony, which is going to be the next day. So, he, he reads the words and says, all right, are y'all in? Are we doing this? And the people, like at a rehearsal, are saying, yes, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. So, all right, come back tomorrow, next morning, and we're going to finalize this. He rose early. In the morning, and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. So, he builds an altar, and this altar represents the presence of God. This represents God's presence as a part of this covenant agreement that he's making with the people. Then he builds and erects twelve stones, twelve pillars. And these 12 pillars represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Now both parties are present for this agreement. Verse 5. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. So then he sends out young men and they gather sacrifices, animals to be slaughtered. And, we're, and if you keep reading, you're going to learn more about what these sacrifices are later in the book of Leviticus. But they offer burnt offerings and peace offerings. Burnt offerings, which you, we, we can learn about later if you keep reading, these are, are, are for atonement. The idea of this animal's death and its, its death is covering your sin and rebellion. So this is atonement and also peace offerings, which is meant to celebrate the fellowship that they have with God. So they have burnt offerings and peace offerings, which is foreign to us, but that's what it represents. That y'all have sinned and you need covering for that sin. And also fellowship with God. Those are offered together. And then Moses does something very specific with the blood of the sacrifices. Verse 6. And Moses took half of the blood 
and put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. So he takes some of the blood of the sacrifices, puts it in the basins, represents the people. And then on the altar, which represents God in this transaction, in this covenant ceremony. Blood goes on both, bringing them and tying them together. Now, super smart, nerdy commentators, theologians debate what's the significance of the blood and what's happening here in bringing them together. And you can read some commentaries, and they're going to make compelling arguments about what's actually happening here is the inauguration, the beginning of the kingdom of priests. That some of the language here is similar, similar to later in Exodus 29 when the Levitical priesthood, the actual priests of the people, are consecrated, when they are really inaugurated as the priests who will represent the people and carry out the sacrificial system and all the responsibilities. But actually, what's happening here is that the whole nation is a kingdom of priests. They're going to be a kingdom of priests to the surrounding nations. So a lot of the rituals here, that this, this blood that's being spilled here, it's meant to signify that, and that's fairly compelling. And then you see other commentators that go, no, what's actually happening here is that this is very, very ancient Near Eastern covenant uh, uh, marital type ceremony stuff. This is the coming together of two parties together as one. And then the feast that follows after this, which we'll read about in a moment, this is actually, this is more of a wedding. And they'll make compelling arguments on both sides, but guess what? Both are true. Because it is a little bit shades of the kingdom of priests who are going to represent God, the people. And it is also the coming together of two parties, God and his people Israel together in holy union. That's what's happening in this ceremony. And the ceremony continues in verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So no longer rehearsal. We're in it now. They are giving their vows. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. They're talking about the Ten Commandments and what flows out of the Ten Commandments, the rest of the law. They're saying, we're in. I do. We're doing this. We're going to be obedient, God. We're going to follow your laws and your words and your statutes. I do. So it's read. They commit to their vows. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And that becomes a very tangible reminder of what is at stake in this covenant. Part of what's happening here is, is that in this covenant, you need covering. So, so some of this is atonement type being poured out on the people. But also, this is a sign of what's going to happen if you break this covenant. It's a sign of judgment. That you've committed to follow the, the law. You've committed to be obedient. But if you aren't obedient, this is what's going to happen. Judgment is going to come. So shades of atonement and shades of judgment are found in the pouring of the blood on the people. And then we pick it up in verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, 
And the 70, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. So we're going to see them actually go up, and they're going to now leave this part of the, of the ceremony, and they're going to have a reception. They're going to have a feast to commemorate this ratification, this I do, this commitment, and this covenant relationship with God and his people. Verse 10, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. And boy, oh boy, when you read verse 10 and 11, there's a lot of, what? <laughs> What's happening at this this reception, this, and there's a lot going on here, and there's a lot of debate over what's happening here because the Hebrew kind of gives some flexibility on interpreting how this is. I don't want to get caught in the weeds of this section. I just want to give you a general idea of what's happening here. The people of God, represented by the 70 elders, the priesthood, which is Aaron and his two sons, the beginning of the priesthood, and Moses, they go further to have a reception before God, and they behold the glory of God. They behold his wondrous glory. We sang that Revelation song earlier. Holy, holy, holy. And all the imagery that went with that from the book of Revelation. They're catching a glimpse of that. They're, they're getting to eat a meal before the glory of God. It says before his feet, not his face, which we see later on in Exodus 32, that if you see the face of God, sinners in the presence of a holy and perfect God, and the face of God cannot stand and live, but they are before the feet of God in ways that kind of break our brains. And they have this meal before the glory of God. And I can't, the, the, the imagery here and how spectacular and wonder and how awe-filled this is, that after this holy ceremony and commitment, they have this wonderful, glorious, awe-inspiring reception. It's powerful. And then once that's done, it continues in verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. This will be the tablets the Ten Commandments are written upon. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. So, the elders of the people, Moses, Aaron, Aaron's two sons, they move up the mountain to have this feast, this reception, and then they, Moses and Joshua continue to ascend up the mountain further. And as we're going to see in a moment, that Moses is going to be the one that keeps going. And this is symbolic here because Moses is the one who's leading them in the wilderness. And later on, Joshua is the one who is leading them into the conquest, into the promised land. So both of them enter up the mountain further. Verse 15, then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. And this is where I think Moses keeps going. Joshua doesn't go the full distance. Verse 16, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called out to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Which, just imagine being an Israelite. 
deep at the base of the, of the mount, looking up and seeing the glory of God like a, de, like a devouring fire encircling the mountain. Maybe you can see in the distance there's a tiny little person that's Moses, and then he, he's going to enter into the presence of the glory of God. And that's how this chapter ends in verse 18. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And this is the finalizing of the covenant that began in Exodus 19. The covenant that God is making with his people that's called the Mosaic Covenant. The covenant through his servant Moses to the people and the two parties coming together. And it's an awesome event. It's a monumental event that the people of Israel would remember for years, would tell of for generations. That they committed to following God. They committed to being obedient to God, to display the holiness of God unlike any other people. And it began back in Exodus 19, but there's something very significant. There's something very significant back in Exodus 19 that gets brought into what we read in verse 24, and we can't miss it. He says, now if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasure possession. Now if, now therefore if you obey my voice. If, if is a conditional statement which shows this covenant is what is called a bilateral covenant. The covenant that they're making here is a bilateral covenant. It is a two-sided covenant. It means that this agreement to be held in place, it's responsible upon both parties, which is familiar to us. Almost every contract you can think of that we would sign in this world both parties have to fulfill the obligations in that contract. That's what's happening here. This is a bilateral covenant. If you obey my voice, if you keep my commandments, if you do this, then God will find favor upon them, will protect them, will provide for them. That's the exchange here. Obedience favor. If this is very different than the covenant of Abraham, which is back in Genesis 15. That if you are reading through the Bible and you get the first really, or the second big covenant that you see in the Bible, in the book of Genesis chapter 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And that one is not a bilateral covenant. That is what's called a unilateral covenant. One, that God chooses Abraham in order that he might bring, he might bless the nations through Abraham by building a great nation through him. And in that covenant that God makes, only God is responsible. It is not incumbent upon Abraham to keep that covenant. God is going to keep that covenant promise. I am going to bless the nations through you. That is only the work of God. But in this covenant, it is different. In the Mosaic covenant that we just read, that we just saw celebrated and ratified, that is a two-party covenant. 
The covenant of Moses clarifies the people must live in right relationship with God. And if, if they break their marital vows, if they don't abide by the law, if they don't obey the voice of God, the marriage is over. If they become an adulterous people and chase after foreign gods, this covenant will be shattered. One of my favorite, I would actually say my favorite rom-com is The Breakup. The Breakup. Throw it back to the 2000s. Just show of hands. Raise your hand if you've seen The Breakup so I know what I'm working with. All right, generally half. Okay. I love that movie. My family, we love that movie. If you haven't seen it, just go to YouTube and type in The Breakup Dinner Scene. That's all you need. The rest of it's good, but I could literally look at my parents and go, tap, tap, tappy, tap, tap, tappy. And they're going to go, Gary, on the kick drum. It's wonderful. It's hilarious. We love that movie. But when I saw that movie in theaters and then other people saw it, other people did not like it. And it's not because they were dumb. It's because because they were disappointed. They were like, they they break up. Why do you want to watch a a rom-com or about a breakup. They they break up, and it's like, did you not see the title? Did you not? It's literally in the title. It's called The Breakup. I mean, goodness, if if Old Yeller was called He Shot the Dog, you (laughs) would not be disappointed at the end when he shoots the dog. You'd see it coming. It's in the title, The Breakup. But it makes the rest of the movie difficult to watch at times because you're watching a couple just break up. And that's what it feels like if you know the rest of the Old Testament. And when you read Exodus 24 in light of the rest of the Old Testament, man, it can be a painful read because you're seeing them take this vow. I'm gonna, we're going to be obedient, God. We're going to do it. And you know they're going to do everything. They're going to do exactly what God told them not to do. But they're going to forsake God. They're going to chase after foreign gods. And you also know that ultimately God's going to bring judgment upon them. The Assyrians, the Babylonians. And judgment is going to be poured out on the people. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient this earnest desire, we will be obedient. And then the looming word that's attached to that in Exodus 19 is if. If. And when you see that for what it is, you, it's like, how could the people commit to this? All the, how, how did they know what they were getting into? And there's a little bit of when you read it, it's like, what is God doing calling this people into this covenant knowing good and well that they are such a wayward people, knowing that they're so driven to chase after other idols, they're going to so deeply struggle to fulfill this. What is God doing and even calling this people into this covenant? There are a few reasons. I'm going to give you three quick ones. First, God is creator. He is the God, the sovereign God over all things. He gets to dictate the terms of the relationship. So when the people say, we'll be obedient, They should. God is holy, and we should be holy as God is holy. So when he says that, he absolutely is with you. They should want that. They should agree to do that. But they are unable due to their sin. 
they're unable, this covenant will be shattered. And that's the second thing is that they just, the Mosaic covenant reveals that the people of God couldn't do this in the first place. They could not obey the law, which means that, which doesn't mean that this covenant has no purpose if they cannot obey the law. But ultimately what that does reveal is, is that there is someone who is going to have to obey the law. There is someone who's going to have to say, all the Lord has spoken, I will do and be obedient. And it's going to have to come through Abraham because that covenant is a promise that will come true. And ultimately, it's going to come from the tribe of Judah. Ultimately, it's going to come from the household of David and the covenant that is made there later on. And of course, the descendant who comes to fulfill this Mosaic covenant in a way that the people could not fulfill it is Christ. That ultimately, this covenant was made so that Christ could come and fulfill it for the people. So that Christ could obey the law perfectly. And at the right time, Jesus is born And for the next 33 years, he lives under the Mosaic Covenant and obeys it perfectly. Every single law, every single marking, he fulfills it perfectly, spotlessly, righteously. And then instead of having another oxen slaughtered and blood spilt to cover the sins, of the people, Jesus takes that perfect record and he goes to the cross, goes to the cross where his blood is poured out to cover the sins of the people. There's a reason we as Christians sing songs like there's a fountain filled blood. There's a reason that we sing as sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. For those who do not know the gospel, that sounds weird. But the hope that we have in Christ is, is that that's our only hope. We could not obey the law. We could not fulfill the Mosaic covenant. We are sinners in need of mercy and the blood of Jesus is poured out on us on the cross. That's our hope. And then when Jesus is buried and rises on the third day and conquers the power of death and its grip that is held upon us, he ultimately is fulfilling Exodus 24, he's fulfilling this covenant, which means we as Christians get to look back at Exodus 19 through 24. We get to look back at this Mosaic covenant differently. And the key to understanding it and our relationship with the law is in a few places, but one of them is Romans 7. So go to Romans 7, starting in verse 1. This is how we as Christians get to approach the law. Or do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to those who know the law. And specifically, context here in Romans, this is, he's really talking to Jewish Christians right now. Jewish Christians who had spent their lives trying to fulfill the Mosaic Covenant on their own. He says, I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. 4, verse 2. A married woman is bound by the law, bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage, highlighting that the covenant that you make in marriage is binding until death do you part. But 
when he or she dies, it's no longer binding. Verse 3, accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Meaning that if her husband dies and then she remarries, she's not an adulteress. Because that covenant of marriage is over. And a new covenant begins in its place. And this, Paul takes that understanding and then explains the law. Likewise, verse 4, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him, Jesus, who has been raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. He's saying your relationship with the law is over. It's over. That marriage is done. You have died when you place your faith in Jesus. Death to life happens, and you are born again to something and someone new, a new creation in Christ. Therefore, because of the death of Jesus, because of this new established covenant of faith, you aren't married to the law anymore. You're wedded to Christ. You belong to Jesus and not the law. Verse 5, 4. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members till to bear fruit for death. Verse 6, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. So Christians, we have a new covenant in Christ. We have a new relationship in Christ. The Israelites served under a bilateral covenant that required both sides. There is no if in Jesus. There is no if in Christ. There is no two-sided agreement in Christ. Jesus unilaterally, unconditionally saves us he redeems us and then sets us apart to be a people for his own possession. And then he puts his Holy Spirit in us. And then God carries us and carries us and carries us and carries us all the way into our future promised land, which is eternity with God. That is a unilateral act of God. That is not a two-sided affair. God unilaterally saves us. The bilateral Mosaic covenant ultimately was meant for Christ to come and fulfill it so that we would not be a people that work for our salvation but trust only in the finished work of Christ. Which means, brothers and sisters, some of you need to stop treating your faith like it's a bilateral covenant. Some of you need to stop treating your faith like it's a two-party transaction. Some of you need to stop treating your faith like it's a conditional faith. It's not. And some of you, some of you have this misunderstanding that being a Christian means being a good person. That you bring your good works, and you maybe even see yourself as a good person, 
that I'm a Christian because I go to worship on Sunday or I'm a part of a community group or I read my Bible or I pray or I serve others or I give or I do all these things, which are good things to do. And you say, I'm a Christian because of all these things that I do and you're misunderstanding. That's, that's not the gospel. You're a Christian because God in his rich, kind mercy saved you. In spite of your sin, he redeemed you. And some of you may not see yourself, I'm, okay, no, I'm, not, I'm not like that. I don't, I don't see myself as, I actually see my sin, but like I just, I, I, I feel this need, like I've got to do, I've got to prove, I've got I to gotta grind, I've got I to earn, I've got to keep earning, like I'm going to lose the favor of God because of the sin of my life. I've just got, I've got to, and it's this endless toil and this endless striving where your soul is never at peace and it's never at rest. And you keep thinking that your side of the agreement you've got to fill. And the works that you do, I've got, to, I've got to keep filling it up as if it's some type of scale that's going to balance out. And there's not enough good works in the world that could ever outdo the sin in our lives. And then there's some of you that have, you know, I have, I, some of you, like, I have this, I, I understand that it's by grace, I've been saved through faith, it's not of works, I'm not saved by works, I'm not saved by works, but all you can see in this relationship with Jesus is your sin. That all you can see is, is the sin beneath you, this indwelling sin, that's in all, and, and it leads you to a place of no, no longer actually seeing Christ and in, in, in overshadowing your sin. You, you, all you can see is your sin, and therefore it leads to this pattern of self-loathing, of self-hatred, that in this relationship with Jesus, all you see is your sin, and you don't like yourself at all. And that's all you can see. And you might protest, but you, dude, you don't know me. If you knew the thoughts that were in my head, if you knew what I did in the quiet of the night, if you saw my sin, if you knew, there's no reason that God should want me. And all you see is your sin. And I want you to hear the words written by a pastor named Dane Ortland that describes the unilateral love and mercy of Christ that you so desperately need to hear. So I just want you, if that's you this morning, I want you to hear this so very clearly. He says that God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. That the parts of you where you feel the most shame and regret that your life is not a hotel where God's mercy comes for a moment and fades away. It is a home where it abides. It means that, it means the things about you which make you cringe the most make him hug hardest. It means his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It is unrestrained, flood-like, sweeping, magnanimous. It means our haunting shame is not a problem for him, but the very thing he loves most to work with. Hear that again. The haunting parts, the parts that make you cringe the most, are the parts of you that Jesus delights in working with the most. It means... Our sins do not cause his love to take a hit, 
Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. It means on that day when we stand before him quietly, unhurriedly, we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy-rich heart we had. That is the unconditional, unilateral mercy of God. This is not a two-party agreement. It's a one-sided affair with the deep abiding love of God that we sang about earlier where his mercy is so much more than we could ever possibly imagine. That's the God who loves you. That's the God that loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die for you and to rise for you so that you might not stare at your sin, so that you might not put your works and your hope in works, so that we might be a people that when we see our sin, we see our glorious Savior. That's the Savior that fulfills Exodus 24. That's the Savior who died for us, and that's the Savior we get to sing about. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us see how wonderful it is that we don't live under the law, that we don't have to fulfill the obligation, the requirements of the law that we get to when we see our sin. Look to you as our only hope. And I pray that for the Christian in here that is so deeply troubled by their sin in a way that they cannot see you clearly, that today you would absolutely open their eyes to the mercies of God that they so desperately need to see. And I pray that you would go to work in the hearts of anyone that, have not, that has not experienced this yet. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing one more song. And the reality is that some of you have never actually tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Some of you have never actually seen the good news of the gospel and made that your only hope. That maybe you've thought all along that being a Christian means I've got to clean myself up, or being a Christian means I've got to bring, I've got I to get back into church, or I've got to do good things, or I've got to be a good Christian. And I want you to hear so clearly this morning, that's not the gospel. The gospel is you seeing your sin and seeing Christ as your only hope. We're about to sing a song called All I Have is Christ. And in it, and it says, you looked upon my helpless state. That's our confession. God, you looked upon my helpless state because I could not fulfill the law, because I could not be obedient enough. You looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. Some of you have never made that decision. Some of you have never actually made that commitment to say, I need Christ. I'm in a helpless state. I'm a sinner. And this morning, the invitation is there. Our God is before you saying, come. Experience my mercy and my goodness and my love and my grace. It is offered, but you have to take it. You have to take a step of faith and place your hope in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And my hope is this morning is that you will. So as we sing this song, some of you need to sing this as a confession of what you believe, but some of you need to confess it for the first time.